Hello? Hello? Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now, he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. He didn't make the rules. The police are always on track. If they watch Palm Night, it's safe time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. Everybody's a suspect! You're not giving any credit to Wes Craven or to Kevin Williamson to think that they left a story hole, particularly just say in Scream 2, where it's a year later, Sydney's in college, someone shows up in a ghost face mask and starts stalking her and killing her friends, and no one says, hey, is Stu still locked up? Isn't he obviously the first suspect? In every Scream sequel, wouldn't Stu always have to be tracked down and eliminated as a suspect in every movie if he was alive? There's a saying success has many fathers and failure an orphan. My next guest has to take some credit for the success of the Scream franchise. He was the first person to read Kevin Williamson's then titled scary movie script. It would go on to rejuvenate the horror genre in the 90s and early 2000s. He's a former Dimensions film executive, experience in film, TV production and story development, studio executive, writer, producer, consultant, script doctor. I think I've got it all in there. It's a big hello and welcome to Richard Potter. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this stuff. I love the screams. Are you uh, are you happy to be one of the fathers of Scream? Because I mean, you said the very now infamous line to Bob Weinstein after reading Kevin Williamson's script: "If you don't want to make this, then I don't know what you're looking for." Let's say yeah. you don't call Bob Weinstein on that night. Uh, you went uh, you went to go to read the script, say, um, but then a phone rings or you get distracted. You have to go to the bathroom. I don't know. Um, <laughs> let's say if that happens, does Scream get made? I think it does. It probably gets made somewhere else and it's not the same movie. Uh, we were not the only ones in on the bidding for it. We were the first in, but there were others who were interested in it as well. Uh, and I don't think Wes Craven would have been involved. Um, I, I, th that, that, chemistry of 
Kevin's words and Wes's vision is why Scream is what it is. It's a magic that you, it was one of those things where the pieces slotted into place. I just happened to be one of the cogs in the wheel, but it was the right wheel, I guess. I was lucky to be a cog in the right wheel. Well, do we ultimately have uh, Kevin's lawyer to thank? Oh, Patty is, I think, a huge part of it. Patty Felker was his, is his lawyer, or was his lawyer then. I don't know if she's still his lawyer. Yes, Kevin went to her for advice. Um, you probably know the story. There were other bids for the script that were more than ours. He would have made more money on the sale. Uh, and she asked him, she said, other places will give you more money, or maybe she said pay you more money, but Dimension will make your movie. You have to decide which is more important to you. And Kevin obviously felt getting the movie made was more important to him, uh, which I think is the smart choice, but in this industry, not always the obvious choice. Because when you see those numbers of a script sale, we always hear it sounds like everyone in Hollywood is making so much money, but that isn't really how it works. Most scripts are sold in a format that's this much money against this much money. The first amount is what you're gonna get paid right now. And the rest is what you get paid if the movie gets made. So someone may get, I'm making this up, this isn't, wasn't Kevin's deal, 125,000 against 400. So they get paid $125,000 right now. They get the rest, so it totals 400 when the movie is made, broken into when the movie's green light, progress to production as it, the movie progresses forward, and then delivery of the, of the final film that get their last payment. That could be over a few years. So um, that 125 may never become 400. And when you think that someone writes a bunch of scripts and tries to sell them, and very few ever sell, that $125,000 may be all you make for the next two or three years if your projects don't get made. So someone offering you more money up front is a very, very um, tough thing to turn down because you may not sell something for a few more years. Kevin wanted to see his movie made and we were looking for something to make that would break us through. So the pieces were all there. But yeah, Patty said to him, here's your choices. And he, I think he made the right choice. Well, more importantly, did Kevin Williamson thank you? Yes. <laughs> Kevin and I, um, Kevin and I, uh, back in those days, we used to spend a lot of time together. And he told me one time that before we bought the script, they were getting, he, he couldn't pay his power bills. His, his electricity and everything was going to be turned off. And I think it worked out for him also because yeah, he didn't get as much for the original sale as he would have gotten from Columbia or Oliver Stone's company, I think was also still in the bidding at the time. But we were ready to make both movies because the rumor that there was an outline for more screams at the back of the spec is true. Although those outlines are not what got made. It just They really just showed that there was more. He had what he came up with for Scream 2 was much better than what was in there. And, you know, it was life-changing for him. Uh, that led to TV series, it led to all the things he's written since then. I mean, he is one of the mega screenwriting talents. 
Because I just remember as a young kid, um, you know, from, you know, those the horror movies that, um, that he sort of wrote for. But then obviously, like you mentioned TV, Dawson's Creek, that was a, a yep. smash hit here. Like at least the, the, the first few seasons in Australia, you know, that was uh, that was. Massive. Oh, wait, you want to see how close we were back then? Yeah. What is the character Joey's last name on Dawson's Creek? Oh, oh, Potter. Potter. oh, oh yeah, of course. Potter. She's Joey yeah. Potter. Yeah. That's correct. Ah, and so was that a bit of a tribute or just a... Kevin used to do little hat tips uh, like that. In Scream 2, there are two police officers protecting Sydney, Officer Richards and Officer Andrews. The two execs at Dimension at the time were me, Richard, and Andrew Rona. So the two, as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, the stats that Sydney gives on Officer Richards, Capricorn, blah, 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 that is actually all me. Oh, wow. And um, Capricorn, talking star signs, are you really philosophical with the star signs? I'm a, I'm a Pisarian. I really don't know that much about it. I find it in a way, if I read someone's horoscope, the ones that you see in the newspaper, like I've never gone and actually been read, but the ones like you see in the newspapers, if I read you mine and told you it was yours, would you go, that, that's not a Pisces? So I wonder about that. I, I, here, I had a funny experience almost 15 years ago or so before I met my wife, I was set up to go out with this woman and we're all ready to go out. She asked me about myself. I tell her and she calls me a little bit later and says, listen, I forgot what sign she said she was, but I'm a Capricorn and Capricorns and her sign are not compatible and she doesn't want to waste anybody's time. So I said to her, do you always look at someone's star sign to determine whether you should date them or not? And she said, yes. And I said, and yet you're single. And she said, oh, that's, you, maybe you're right. So we got together anyway, and we just, you know, we didn't hit it off, but it was like, if you're always using this to make your decisions and you're not where you want to be, maybe it's not working for you. And what's interesting to me about the whole, I'm really interested in um, beliefs and where beliefs come from, because any core belief that, that has lasted this long isn't based on nothing. People saw something. So what did that come from? What is the correlation? What I wonder about star signs in particular is since we know that we are not in the same place, the earth's tilt has changed over hundreds and thousands of years. At some point, do they have to make, start adjusting when the star signs, where they are in terms of like, are they, re if, if the star signs were set to, I'm making this up, 300 years ago, but we now know that like the stars are not in the same place in the sky for us that they were 300 years ago. At what point do they go, okay, Capricorn now starts on the 25th, not the 21st. Um, you know, at some point the stars aren't where they were. So certain things aren't in the same place. It can't be the same thing. And there was that whole new star sign that I think uh, from a yes, few years ago. Yeah, sign. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's really stuff. You're not a Capricorn. I'm not a Pisces. And we're just living in this fake world of uh, star right. signs. But uh, I was listening to the uh, the Woodsboro podcast, which you did uh, uh, late last year. And yeah. Bob Weinstein apparently is on the phone to Kevin Williamson's agent at the time. Gives him an <laughs> yeah. offer. Yeah, he's looking yeah. for an offer. He wants to buy the script. He says, yeah. oh, we will we'll pay a million dollars for this script. Yeah. But the, the caveat is, you know, once I hang up this phone. There's it, no it, offer. There's no offer. Yeah. Did Merrimax or Dimension Films ever do anything like that again? Was there any similar type of offer where they're on the phone? Like, we will pay X amount of dollars right now, but you have to sign the deal. There may have been, not that I was involved with. Um, 
But Bob, in that particular case, was not trying to strong, strong arm the agent. We were the first ones in. And what Bob wanted to do was buy the script before the town at Hollywood had a chance to start making offers because he was afraid that once we came in with any kind of offer, the agents would notify everyone Dimension came in with an offer. And that would just drive the price up and drive us out of it. Um, so he wanted to keep the price at a level that we could afford. So that conversation was him saying to the agent, what takes this script off the table? And the agent kept saying, I don't know, I don't have a number. And Bob just kept saying to him, what number can, you, can I say yes to that we now own the script? Um, what does it take to get it off the table? So the um, uh, agent goes, I don't know, Bob, a million dollars. So Bob says, so if I say a million dollars, we have the script? And the agent started hemming and hawing and Bob goes, okay, a million dollars, do we have it? And that's what became, the agent said he has to talk to his client, he has to you know, let other people respond. And Bob said, okay, whatever you need to do, but understand if we hang up the phone, there's no million dollar offer from Dimension. So if you try to start a bidding war, we're gonna deny to anyone that there's a million dollar offer because there is no offer once we hang up the phone. And as you know, uh, we bought it for 400,000 instead of a million. And you were talking about before, you know, the movie getting made and that's what Kevin Williamson really wanted, but he could have had a million dollars and the movie most likely getting made as well. Yes. Um, uh, if the agents, I don't want to fault the agents for that because, you know, everything is a series of what ifs, but yes, probably at that point um, we would have got like, we, we would have had the movie. We would have ended up spending a million dollars for it. Kevin would have gotten his million dollar check. But I, I have to wonder if that would have put a different pressure on us to move faster because mm. we had just spent this money, which means every time when I go to Wes Craven and ask him to take a look at the script and he passes the first time, do I have the opportunity to go back to him two more times, which is what it took to get him? Or do I have to take his pass and move on and find another director because of the pressure? Do we not have the money to pay Wes Craven because we're already a million dollars into the movie? So who knows? Who knows? I mean, it, it seems like, you know, in your head, you say to yourself, well, he'd get the million dollars, then Wes Craven makes his movie and it's the same thing, but maybe it wouldn't be. Kevin Williamson, was there even a potential for him to sort of direct when there was a little bit of a struggle to find directors? You said Wes Craven, you know, rejected it a few times. I believe you also said on that Woodsboro uh, podcast, Wes Craven actually let Kevin Williamson direct a scene. I think he, he was using the oh, Halloween. No, Wes, Wes didn't do that. No. We did that. Okay. Kevin wanted to direct the movie. Um, we weren't sure about having Kevin direct the movie. But before we could even discuss whether we could have Kevin direct Scream or anything else, we have to know, can this guy direct? So we gave him some money. He picked, or I don't think we picked it because I don't remember that conversation. It could be, but maybe I'm wrong. I think Kevin picked the bathroom scene from Scream. And I always bring up the Halloween mask because it just shows that we, we were serious about, this wasn't like, all right, let this guy direct something. Like we really want, we're giving him the best that we have. We had done Halloween six and the Michael Myers mask was in the closet in my office. So when Kevin needed a mask, cause there was no ghost face mask yet. He needed a mask. I said to him, do you want to use the Halloween mask? So in the test scene that he directed, 
he uses the mask from Halloween. And to put like the, the period on this story, because I guess the obvious next question is, was the scene he directed any good? And the answer is yes. Kevin did a really good job directing that scene. There's, uh, we had no issues, complaints or whatever. He, he filmed it. We had a, a great editor. I believe we had one of the editors we used a lot for, for the Miramax side of things, um, cut it together with Kevin. I have no idea where that is. Uh, you know, Miramax has been sold a bunch of times, so mm. I don't know where that footage is. I imagine Kevin has a copy of it somewhere. Um, he did a really good job, but that was real. He shot the scene. Um, I don't know. I wasn't out in L.A. when he shot it, so I don't know where he did it. But um, it definitely told us Kevin can direct a movie. He's, he's the guy's so talented. I mean, he's special. I, I uh, like I said, I don't know whatever happened to it. I never even saw it on. I don't think I saw it on film. I think I saw a VHS tape of it. Remember, this is the 90s. There's the digital cut that was made using an Avid that was outputted to VHS. So it potentially exists on a disk drive somewhere. The actual negative and the film that was cut together may exist somewhere. Or it's possible that, you know, this is before the movie got made. It's like those old stories you hear. No one had any way of knowing this would be important. Someone has asked recently about the voice changer from Scream, what happened to it? Uh, we begin the conversation, you know, it probably just went back to the prop house. Who would have who would have thought? No one knew what this movie was going to be. We had no way of knowing. Like we knew we had something special. We didn't know it was going to be, you know, genre changing, genre defining for the defining for the nineties. And quick question: the uh, Halloween Six mask. How did that um, get into your office? We made Halloween Six. Dimension started out as an acquisitions only label where we would buy finished films and then distribute them. Or when, when I arrived and started kind of commenting to Bob Weinstein on things that I thought really weren't very good in these movies, we then started fixing them, doing reshoots and things like that, um, which led to uh, naturally to making our own movies. A franchise we got, um, we got a bunch of legacy franchises. One of them was Halloween. And the first one we got was Halloween 6. So when that movie ended, somehow the prop mask, it's called the hero mask. When there's a prop or a particular um, piece of wardrobe, there's a bunch of them. And then there's one that will be called the hero one. The hero one is the one that you see most of the time. But if there's a fight scene, you switch to a different mask so that if it gets damaged or scratched or ripped, the next thing you shoot, you still have the hero mask. The hero mask is always the same. Uh, as a matter of fact, somewhere uh, in the next room, I actually have the hero box from Hellraiser 4. They gave that to me at the end of doing that. So anyway, that's why I had the mask, which leads to the great trivia people always ask in Halloween H2O, there are scenes where Michael looks weird. And the reason is they were using some weird mask that they had had made and we saw the dailies at Dimension and we were like, what is, what is this? Who, what, is, what mask is this? So we called the production and said, what mask are you using? And whoever we were talking to said, well, we couldn't find the original mask. You know, we asked everyone, nobody knows where it is. And I remember him saying, I know for a fact you didn't ask everyone. And there was silence for a beat. And I said, because I have it. Why didn't you call the studio? Why didn't you ask us? I, I'll FedEx it to you, you'll have the mask tomorrow. 
And then that mask was used. But I've also wondered, you know, the Halloween masks after the first movie were not William Shatner masks anymore. They were actually masks made for the movie. So somebody had the mold. So, and it was always uh, Trankus that makes all of those movies. So somebody, not only did they not ask the studio for a mask, because I, as obviously I had it, but they obviously didn't ask the producers where the mask was because Trankus had the mold and could have made more. So somebody, I, it, you know, in any kind of business or anything you're running, I know you've done a lot too, you know, there's always that one person who isn't really doing what they're supposed to be doing. And if, so somebody never checked. Somebody didn't look for the mask and just reported that they couldn't find it. That's what really happened there. Horror fans and film goers, they've, uh, you know, just recently lined up to see Scream 5, which earned a reported $130 million at the box office. Uh, and, you know, rumours that there's going to be a sixth instalment to this franchise. Uh, in your opinion, what is it about the Scream franchise that, I guess, resonates with people today? Oh, that's interesting. People today. I think it's meant different things to different people at different times. The original... I can tell you what got me most excited about the script as I was reading it the night that it came in as a spec script was that it was teenagers. This is the mid-90s. John Hughes has, has stopped making all those classic pretty and pink type movies. So there's nobody making movies for teenagers. And the only franchises that are around are legacy franchises. Halloween 6, Hellraiser 4, Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know what number they were up to at that point when Wes made New Nightmare. Friday the 13th, I don't know what number they were up to. So it was a new look at teenagers, teenagers who were like heightened versions of real teenagers, which you'd never seen before. A teenager in a horror movie who's actually seen a horror movie. I mean, the fact that that's groundbreaking is surprising when you think about that. So back then, I think a lot of what it was was giving the 90s teenagers, the 90s kids, you, your own franchise. This isn't someone else's. This isn't the one that your parents started with or, you know, or the one that you watched on video, uh, you know, from 1980, which was at that point 16 years earlier. This was yours. I think what Scream Now, what it's become is every time there's a new Scream movie, part of the idea behind it is it's not going to be scream again this is always going to be whoever the current target teenagers are it's always for you the idea that this one deals with and full disclosure i have nothing to do with the new one but i'm still going to compliment it the fact that it deals with things like toxic fandom and the social media aspects that's not part of the core of the original screen it's not in the dna of the original screen but what is in the DNA of the original screen is that the movies are always about what's happening now. So it's never, when you see a number after a Scream movie, it's never that feeling of, oh, well, this is just a sequel to something I never saw, or it's, you know, it's my parents' franchise. The, the, when you get Screams right, it's always for you. It's always about now. That's the meta aspect of it. But when they're done right, um, particularly, I think Scream and Scream 2, most of all, it still gives you a, a, a window of to what was going on at the time. So it's entertaining on that respect. Scream and Scream 2 are never gonna feel like they're for me if I'm 15 
now, but the current Scream, Scream 5, Scream 2022, will feel like that one's for me. It's not just a legacy sequel. And that's what makes Scream a special franchise, I think. It's an interesting perspective. I guess um, you touched on um, toxic fandom there, which was a, is a theme in the new film. I'm, I'm guessing, have you seen the new, the new film? Yeah, and I'm a, I'm a fan. I, I'm not going to lie. I love the I love these movies. I, I, the spin on the genre is so. I mean, I, I'm I'm when what the kind of kid that you were talking about when we talked before, fifteen year old you. That was fifteen year old me. We're these movies are for people like you and I. These movies are always going to be for us because um, we and I'm saying this in quotes. We get it. Yeah. But for the casual fan, it actually has to be for them or they don't connect to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, toxic fandom and all that stuff. The Internet age, which is now, you know, nobody talks about it like that anymore because now it's not an age. It's just a, this is how life is now. But the idea that you can everyone feels like things belong to them and they have the right to whatever with a celebrity or with a piece of intellectual property, whereas you know, I'm older than you, but even 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 when you were growing up, you understood that you didn't own it. It was made to entertain you, but you don't have any say in it. You can write fan fiction. You can write to the people who made it, but it belongs to them in terms of actual ownership. But it's for you to see, for some reason now, there's this idea that because I watched it, I own it. Mm. And if I didn't like it, I should not only should I tell you that, but I should tell you how stupid you are and punish you for that. And, you know, it's entertainment. What I'm always surprised when someone knows who I am. I'm a movie fan. I know you are too. I couldn't tell you who the second or third producer on a movie was, you know, in the credits or uh, who the studio executive was. Uh, my, my father was teaching in a medical school around the time that Scream 2 came out. and. I mean, my last name is Potter. It's not like it's a really unusual name. Someone in his pathology class asked him if he was my father. I was like, what? Why would somebody even make that connection? But I've had people like um, want to talk about online about like something that happened in a scream. An example is whether Stu is alive or not. That debate that happens. And I basically said, you know, there was never a discussion of Stu living. Um, the intent when we shot it was that he was dead. He's stabbed. He's bleeding to death. A television, those old school TVs, falls on his head, probably cracks his skull and electrocutes him. The idea was no way anyone survives this. And someone was telling me I was wrong because Matt said in an interview that Wes told him that there was a discussion of him coming back. And then these stories about um, Stu comes back and he's running a cult that Kevin had said that was his idea for Scream 3. And I'm saying, I was there. We never talked about that. that. Kevin may have had ideas like that, but that was never discussed. I know what the plan for Scream 3 was because on the set of Scream 2, me and Kevin and Julie Pleck were discussing what the next movie was going to be, which is not the Scream 3 that got made, but Kevin ended up not writing Scream 3. Aaron Kruger wrote it. And this person was telling me my arrogance and having a big head because I worked on some screen movies. And I'm like, I'm not here to argue with you. I'm telling you what was happening at the time that we were making the movies. Stu was dead. There was never a discussion of Stu coming back. There was, you know, I'm, I believe that Kevin had, if Kevin said in an interview that he had the idea for the cult, I believed him. 
And if he had thought about Stu being a cult leader, I believe him, I, of course. But what I've said to these people is, you're not giving any credit to Wes Craven or to Kevin Williamson to think that they left a story hole, particularly just say in Scream 2, where it's a year later, Sydney's in college, someone shows up in a ghost face mask and starts stalking her and killing her friends. And no one says, hey, is Stu still locked up? Mm. Isn't he obviously the first suspect? In every Scream sequel, wouldn't Stu always have to be um, tracked down and eliminated as a suspect in every movie if he was alive? And, you know, apparently that makes me a horrible human being who, do who has a big head and is arrogant. Because, you know, and I'm like, look, there was only three people in the room, me and Kevin and Jewel. Yeah, but what would you know, though, uh, Richard? Right. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> uh, like, I, but I have to tell you, let's say that's 10% of my interaction with the fans. The other 90%, they love it. And I love that they love it. And I always say, ask me anything you want to know. If I know the answer, I'll tell you. Yeah. I've had a great time. There's an online Scream trilogy. Um, they've interviewed me twice. Ryan over there knows much more about Scream than any of us who worked on it. I've talked to uh, Patrick Lussier, who edited the movies, Marion Maddalena, who was Wes's producing partner, and a bunch of other people who've all talked to Ryan. And we're always like, he knows much more about my life than I do. Um, <laughs> he knows about my experiences, you know, in Atlanta and what we were doing. And it's like, oh, he'll say something. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I have to remember, I'm the one who was there. He wasn't there. Yeah, but like most of the fans, they they love it. These were a lot of work. These, I mean, not going to lie, Scream 2 in particular was the most fun I've ever had working on a movie because we had just done Scream the year before and suddenly we were all back. We were all in our 20s. It was like what you imagine when people are like, oh, sleep awake camp was the greatest time of my life. Um, th that's got to be what this was. Like we were all friends. We were all the same age, you know. And Wes Craven was the coolest guy you could ever imagine. It was so much fun. I guess with the, the original, even the second one as well, I guess um, they still hold up. You sort of mentioned that it was for the teenagers of today and to, you know, they weren't these dumb characters that were just lining up to get butchered. They kind of, you know, they, they were characters and intelligent. And I guess that, that's why the originals still sort of hold up. I mean, there's a lot of films that would come after Scream that not that they you know don't hold up or they age bad i mean some do for sure but it you can go back and watch scream 1996 and still relevant even though you like you said kind of targeted for a different teenager at the time right well a funny thing you say about that is um why does the movie start with drew barrymore watching a movie on video at home because kevin was smart enough to realize that the most of the life of your movie is home video. This is before streaming. So he knew most people who were gonna be watching his movie were gonna be doing what she was doing. And that would make it a little more frightening. You're sitting in your home where you think you're safe, putting on a scary movie, and then this happens. When the movie blew up, um, he came up with the idea of starting the second movie in a movie theater, where at that point he felt most people were gonna see the movie. So he put you, the audience, where his character was. I mean, like I said, he's brilliant. He, he, he's next level talent. In retrospect, 
it's an all-star cast. Yeah, and you mentioned Drew Barrymore there. It was essentially, she was the, the poster girl for this film, um, very much so. Um, Wes Craven and a lot of other people disappointed when she essentially has to pull out from the main role of Sydney Prescott. Sliding doors, let's say Drew Barrymore doesn't pull out. She is Sydney Prescott. Do you think Scream is still as successful? And I don't mean that as a knock on Drew Barrymore that it wouldn't have been as successful, but would it still be the same in your opinion? Um, in the long run, probably. In the short run, no. As you probably know, it was her idea to not be Sydney and switch to Casey, which shocked all of us because we weren't prepared for that. And we were talking to Wes about, you know, you're going to direct this Drew Barrymore movie. And then she says, I don't want to be Sydney. I want to be Casey. The thing that, that her what she did provided was when you saw the ads for the movie and you saw the poster, your assumption is, well, Drew Barrymore is the star of the movie. Of course, she's going to live. And then she doesn't. And then in retrospect, it's an all-star cast. At the time we made it, it's Drew Barrymore. And then the rest of the cast is the girl from Party of Five, Rosanna Arquette's brother, Monica from one season of Friends, and some kids that you may have seen in smaller parts in other movies. I mean, when, when Jamie Kennedy was cast as Randy, his audition tape, he was still shooting Romeo and Juliet. So he hadn't, that hadn't even come out yet. Or maybe it's come out a little bit before our movie did. But there's, there's no stars in it. But what we did, what we were learning at Dimension, even back then, was we tried to cast off television. Because if you cast off TV, your audience, when they saw the trailer and the TV commercials, would see the movie as a real movie because all the actors are real. Um, they're not nameless, faceless, whatever. But it's funny, it's all star in retrospect. At the time, they were all stars. Um, if the movie came out in December, by the you know, beginning of February, they were all stars. But you know, only Drew was a star at the beginning of December. And the whole Casey Becker death and with Drew Barrymore, it was, I, uh, I'd imagine it's a big psycho homage, homage like yes, Janet Leigh. Yes. yes. What's interesting, I've always thought about it, is it's almost its own short film. It's its own horror movie. Mm. Um, but Wes did some absolutely brilliant things in there. I, I learned a lot from him and he would, I could ask him questions on set and he would answer them. And, you know, having someone like him to ask questions to is a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, it turned out to be more than once, but how was I supposed to know that? He does a couple of really interesting things. One of which is he wants to set up the core mystery of the movie. The mystery of the movie is who is the killer? Who killed Casey Becker? So he has her reach up and start to pull the mask off. We don't see what she sees, but without, without seeing what she sees, just watching what she did in your mind, He's got you thinking, who was that? And that creates the mystery through the whole movie. It, people can't appreciate now the, how surprising Two Killers was. The idea of Two Killers is just part of the DNA of movie making and storytelling now. When I was reading that script that night in the office, I was trying to figure out, is it somehow supernatural? How is this guy in two places at once? How does he get, he was just knocking on the back door. Then she opens the front door and he's standing there. How did he do that? So I wanted to figure out how it was done. And when I got to the end and read Two Killers, my jaw hit the desk. I was like, that was part of my reason for saying to Bob, if you don't want to make this, I don't know what you're looking for. 
besides the teenagers, besides the fact that reading the Casey Becker sequence off the page scared me in my office. Besides that was the, and by the Randy character, completely original. Never, there's never been a character like that before. And then the reveal of the two killers, I was like, I, this, is on, this is so original. No one's ever done anything like this before. And Wes does all these little things. Like I think she opens the door one time and if you look, she kind of surprises the killer who turns around. He had his back door and he turns around and he's got the knife because it's Billy and Stu. One is like the guy at the front door wasn't expecting her to be there because the other one's supposed to be messing with her with her boyfriend in the back. There's all these things that when you realize it's two teenage boys that you start to realize they're acting, the killer's acting like two teenage boys. And one of my jobs, by the way, that uh, I've had fun talking to fans about was on Scream 1 and Scream 2, I was responsible for knowing where each killer was, who <laughs> killed who, and who's in the front of the house, who's in the back of the house, and all that. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. I know that's disappointing to some people. But uh, I actually, we had to know because Wes wanted the internal logic to work. We're watching a movie, we know it's make-believe, but I guess if there's something that kind of takes you out of the universe, you um, it sort of loses credibility, right? Yes, and one of the things that Wes taught, was, taught me as a lesson there was, obviously you can hear Roger Jackson doing the voice through the phone, but there are other people who get phone calls not from the killer in the movie. And in, I think in the early drafts of the script, or it may have been on Scream 2, Kevin had made references to someone being on the phone, and Wes wanted to know what the person on the other end of the phone was saying, and we were like, what difference does it make? And Wes said, in his movies, if you establish a rule, it's a rule. So if the rule is you can hear what the person on the phone is saying, then you have to always be able to hear what the person on the phone is saying. Um, so since we could hear the killer talking through the phone to the victims, that meant anytime someone got a phone call, the rule has been established that you can hear what the person on the other end of the phone is saying. And I loved that he did that because how many times have you been watching a movie or a TV show where you hear people talking to each other on the phone and then with 15 minutes left in the movie, someone gets a phone call and they're like, hello? Oh my God, I'll be right there. And you're like, I wonder what that, what it, and then they go and they're being set up. And then you look back and go, well, what did he say to her to get her to go? Like she was so scared in her house. Then she got a phone call and she was willing to leave because they need the plot needed her to go leave but Wes would be like well then you've got to tell me what he said or we can't hear the killer or the other phone calls and I've adopted that into anything I've worked on since then the idea that if you have a rule if you establish something in the film it is now established as a rule of the film creates good consistency um there's a question that I've got to ask um I'm not sure if you necessarily know the answer but I'm a big uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds fan and the song Red Right Hand essentially one of the Best songs on the soundtrack. Absolutely. I mean, I'm flying the Aussie flag here. Uh, Nick Cave, one of the biggest Australian exports at the time and still today, I, I'd imagine. Uh, an interesting note, I guess, um, it, it is kind of like the, I feel it's like the scream song of the soundtrack, uh, at least for the first three. wasn't featured in four, but did make a return for five. Um, any, any note or who selected that song or did you know the process or just your opinion about it? I don't. I mean, I'd have to look at the soundtrack um, I would, most of our soundtracks back then were put together by Randy Poster, um, who, I mean, the guy's taste in music is unbelievable. I mean, just that's right there. The Scream One soundtrack is one of the better um, 
popular music soundtracks. Um, I would put it up there as a 90s soundtrack with the soundtrack to The Crow for how good, you could put it on as just a mix album. If someone didn't tell, especially nowadays where people wouldn't realize it's a soundtrack. If you yeah. just put that on at a 90s party, people would just be like, this is great 90s music. It's just a great album. That song in particular um, leapt out at me when we got first got to hear the soundtrack, um, the soundtrack album. Um, I didn't know the song. Uh, and then I heard it and I was like, it does feel like, did he write this for us? Did he? And he didn't. But it just, it, there's something about the tone of it. He gets the tone of the movie. It just, I mean, if it was Randy Poster or whoever um, did that soundtrack, it was, you know, that's one of the standouts of the sound. I love that you spotted that. I mean, you're a fan of, of Nick Cave, but to, to realize like that, that is the standout. That's, that, that's the one that feels like it's for the movie. It's not just a soundtrack to the movie. It feels like it's, it's for the movie. And that's, I guess, why I was so disappointed that the uh, fourth installment didn't include it because I thought, it, you know, it, oh, that's the song. And um, I guess yeah. um, they were sort of uh, treading new ground there. But you're, you're a music guy. Do you have a favorite Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds album? I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is, um, a lot of music that comes here, not so much from the UK anymore, but from Asia and Australia, we get individual songs. We don't always get the album till much later. I mean, Men at Work, okay? When I was a teenager, or I was a young, I wasn't a teenager yet, when that came here, it was an import. It was going up the charts here like crazy, but it still wasn't like you could go to the CD shop or the record shop and buy it, but it was in the import section. Like we could get the song, I could buy the singles but I couldn't buy the album. So like, I don't know, it's always embarrassing talking about this stuff because unless it's from the UK or the US, I don't know if we have the same albums. Isn't that insane? Yeah. Even with things like iTunes and, and you know, hmm. streaming services. Well, streaming services, sorry, to get off on a tangent, have killed albums. <laughs> Nobody listens to an album because you just hear the songs. I, I, uh, my nephew has gotten into Led Zeppelin um, mm. And he and his girlfriend were here over um, Thanksgiving and they were telling me about their favorite Led Zeppelin song. So I pulled out the album Physical Graffiti and just started playing the album all the way through. And they were like, oh, I've never heard this one. Before. Oh, I know that one. And I was like, how do you know these but not these? And then yeah. they told me they've never heard the album. Yeah. Like Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Like that's a you, live, you listen from, you know, track one all, all the way through. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The, Animals, by the way, my favorite Pink Floyd album. And I guess this uh, mid '90s, what music are you listening to? Because you, you had some late nights um, uh, at the uh, at the uh, office. Did, were you allowed to pump music, or you know, what, what was uh, playing on the radio? Or what sort of do you remember? I had a, a CD player in there. I played a lot of Alice in Chains. Um, <laughs> I loved Alice in Chains in the '90s, and uh, I love them now with William Duvall as the singer. Mm. Um, I love that they decided we're not going to try to find someone who sounds like Lane Staley. We're going to find someone who sounds good singing with Jerry Cantrell and live. I love it. I, I was L7, who I think, I can't believe that they aren't more remembered. They were one of the best. They're all female, hard rock, almost punk. People only know their song, uh, Pretend That We're Dead. Like they, they, anyone who hears this, get listen to L7. They sound like a contemporary um punk band they're they're amazing summer yeah. of love is a personal favorite of mine i think that was even featured on the um i know what you did last summer uh soundtrack 
Um, I guess you, you mentioned that Scream 2, that was, you had the most fun. I mean, you've gone, you go to a co-executive producer here as opposed to executive of production with the first yeah. film. What's, what was the main difference with those two roles or were they kind of one in the same almost? It's the same role. I mean, credited movies don't work the way people think they work. The way people think they work is probably closer to what they should, how they should work, that you get your credit and your, your pay is for what you did. Um, a lot of it is weird contractual stuff. I don't know why co-executive. I don't know why not co-producer. I don't know why not producer. Um, I was with Marianne and Kathy doing everything they were doing, their producers. Part of it was that we were the studio. Part of it was, I think, um, my age being so young. I don't know. Uh, but my, I, my job on the set was the same. I did exactly the same thing more involved in development on the second script because we had to start from scratch. The first script, I mean, what the movie that got made is almost, almost exactly what I read that night. There's a couple of differences, but if we had shot what I read that night, I think the movie's, it's basically the same. There's a couple of good, good uh, tweaks that were made to it that make it better. But Kevin's spec script is still the best spec script I've ever read. And how, I mean, this is the 97, you know, uh, the internet, it's becoming more in the mainstream. It was kind of still in its infancy at this point in time. But how much was Scream 2 dictated by script leaks being on the internet? Oh, wow. Yeah. We never had that as an issue before Scream 2, where we realized people were trying to find out what it was about. Scream 2, we really had to hide what was happening in the script. We... I was responsible for the script security. Um, I don't know why I didn't volunteer for that, but it ended up becoming my thing. I had a really smart assistant. Her name was Beth Calabro. I got to give the credit to her for this because I didn't find this. Paper, brown paper to print the script on. When you print it from the printer, it's perfectly readable. You put this particular brown paper in a copy machine and the entire page is black. Wow. You can't read it. Then she found this other paper that's white, but has the same weird color brown streak down the middle, which is where the dialogue is. So if you, I could print it for you, you could read it clearly. You put that in a copy machine to make a copy of the script. Because remember back then, scripts are not emailed, you get a physical copy. You put that in the copy machine and what you get is just pages and pages of a black bar straight down the middle of the page, it's not readable. Then what we did was I told Kevin for the last maybe 10 or 15 pages to do a find and replace. And anywhere there was a character's name, replace the name with the word character. And anytime there was a he, him, his, or she, her, hers, replace that with the word character. So anyone reading the end of the script couldn't tell who was male, who was female, who was talking, who was being referred to. So this way, the people who had to build the sets and do all the physical work knew everything. They knew what the staging was gonna be. Someone's gonna be over here. Someone's tied to a prop. Someone is running in through the theater, but you don't know who. You don't know who's doing what and who's saying what, so it couldn't leak. Then on top of that, we generated some fake scripts based on early drafts of that script, sometimes based on the scream script with different ludicrous endings. We had fun just making them up and just kind of leaving them around. 
And there was a day I was walking through Greenwich Village to get down to the Miramax offices. And I saw one of those tables where the people are selling scripts for sale and the Scream 2 script was there. So I took out my $10 or whatever he was charging and bought one. Went down to the, panicking by the way, that this was really gonna be the script. Got to the office, opened it up and it was one of the fake ones, it had a fake ending that was not the end of the script. Uh, and I always wonder by the way, if this cult and stew surviving thing, isn't one of the fake endings that we came up with that has somehow gotten, I don't remember what they were, but I, I always wonder if that isn't one of them and that it somehow survived and is believed to be real. So there was a lot done to keep it secret because websites, early websites like Ain't It Cool News would leak the ending and, and other websites would too. And we wanted to make sure that the ending, that nothing about the script got out. I was going to say, depending on who you believe or what you're looking at, uh, the original killers were Derek and Haley. There was even apparently Cotton uh, Wearing and Debbie Salt teaming together, a version where Gail dies, another version where Dewey dies. You can't set the record straight uh, on, the, on, on those. Uh, Cotton as a killer was discussed. We may have discussed Derek and Haley, but um, it would be too much if it was Derek and anyone. It's scream, just scream again. Um, it was always Billy's mother, De Debbie Salt. Um, there was the original outline on the back of Scream that was Kevin's. This is what a sequel could be. Cotton was the killer. He was so upset about having been wrongly accused and that nobody helped him that he became the killer. And one of the first things we said when we were developing Scream Two is that's so obvious. Um, and Kevin being Kevin leaned into that's obvious. So you keep thinking based on Cotton's behavior that he's really being threatening to Sydney. But after you've seen the movie and you go back and watch it again, he's not threatening her. The guy is desperate. He, his life has been ruined. Um, and he's just basically saying to her, will you help me? You know, this is, this is kind of your fault. You did this to me. Um, and uh, she still is like, you know, you had an affair with my mother you're disgusting, stay away from me. Um, that's what the conflict, in retrospect, once you've seen the movie, you go back and realize that's what was happening. He's never threatening her. He's cornering her saying, you gotta help me. Come on, Diane Sawyer. Diane Sawyer is gonna interview us. I don't, she'll interview me if you'll do it. Um, <laughs> but he's actually the person who seems the most scared too. Like he, you know, although I do, you know, Liev Schreiber is such a great actor. That moment at the end where it seems like he's trying to decide if he's going to really help her or not. Like, I don't think he ever would have let her die, but he, she wouldn't help him. So he, this was his moment to actually go, you'll do the interview. I'll say another little quick trivia. The script says that in the first movie that she's looking through a newspaper and sees a photograph of Cotton. We were planning on screen that we would do another one. So we had Liev actually film that sequence where you see him in the handcuffs being put into a police car. There are little things in there that we knew. The Tory spelling thing um, in the, when we shot that, um, you know, I see you as a young Meg Ryan. My luck they'll cast, we went through a bunch of names um, so that when we started planning on screen two and doing the stab thing, um, Tory spelling said yes, so it's Tori Spelling in the movie. She's in on the joke. Um, and one of my favorites is all the articles that got written after Scream came out about where is, there's no black people in this town. 
where is this town? And um, we knew that Scream 2 started with a character who was gonna say the same thing. Because part of the thing that's so ridiculous in all of these horror movies is there, where are these towns? Where does J.B. Lee Curtis live? Where are these places? They're all upper middle class, all white neighborhoods. So we were winking at that, knowing that in the next movie, we're actually gonna comment on that. Yeah, with uh, yeah, Jada Pickensmith um, yeah, at, at the and start. Omar yeah. And the yeah. funny thing being Joel, the cameraman, talking about how the black guy always dies in the movie, not knowing that he's in a movie where two black characters have already died. It's, it's a good lead up to the next question because Stab, um, as a kid, I always thought, wouldn't it be crazy if there was the actual Stab film, like from, you know, reel to reel, start to finish that you could actually watch? Was there ever any consideration to essentially, I guess, do two movies at once? Um, we never talked about that. I think that's something you could probably do more nowadays when you're shooting things digitally and it's not on, I mean, it's really expensive to shoot on 35 millimeter film. And keep in mind that Wes also directed the stab footage. So he would have had to direct both movies um, for that to work. Great trivia though, if you look at who wrote stab on the stab poster, it's Julie Pleck and me. Oh, wow. Okay. I have, to, I have to zoom that in and have a look at that. I guess yeah, all, um, of the all of the people na named on the, in the credits on STAB are actually people doing something on screen, on the screens. That's amazing. I guess any uh, favorite cameo from uh, uh, with the STABs? Um, wow, that's tough. Um, I don't want to say a favorite cameo. It's not about a person. It seems the my mother's never coming back. Never, ever, ever. It just kills me with the ridiculous, those two hairs he's got hanging over his <laughs> And how Wes made fun of the shower sequence at the beginning of Scream in Stab with like inappropriately, him and Patrick Lussier, inappropriately cutting in the popcorn in ways that doesn't really work. Um, as if, you know, someone doesn't get what he was doing and like how it really played out. Um, and what's funny is when people talk about it, they do what I just did. They talk about the scream version as how it quote really happened. When in fact, none, none of that really happened. They're both movies. Yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, interesting. Um, we're about to get sort of cross universes here and this is probably potentially some uh, doors for a uh, toxic fandom, uh, scream two. Um, that's actually playing during Halloween H2O. Now, if you go back to the original Scream, they're watching Halloween, which is Halloween. part of a part of a saga, which is, um, you know, I guess, I guess a um, uh, canon or, or something. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a bit of a mixed multiverse there. We, I remember when they talked about having them watch um, Scream in Halloween. And I will be perfectly honest, I was against that. Um, I thought um, it blows the reality that Halloween is a series of movies you can watch and scream if screams really, you know, taking now having the, you know, 20 years to look back on it. Um, I actually like that it's in there. I think it's a funny little, you know, sort of crossing of the worlds. What it really was, what Bob had said to me at the time was they're both dimension franchises. So it's, we're basically giving a nod to dimension because dimension known Halloween at the time um, within these movies um, and kind of allowing um, 
Halloween in on the meta universe joke of Scream. Um, and, you know, he was right. I, I like that it's in there. And like you said, it makes sort of complete sense with um, Scream. Because, I mean, it depends on... Sometimes I, when I was a kid, I definitely viewed Scream and Scream 2 as horror movies, which, which they are. But being a bit older, sometimes I view them as... I watch them, oh, I'm watching a comedy. And I feel they kind of work on both levels, if that makes sense. They do. But when we were showing the first script to potential directors, every director who read it as a comedy with scares in it passed, didn't like it. Um, the readers within the company who, you know, you have coverage done of a script because when all the executives don't have time to read every script. So you want them to be able to basically know what's, what the script is so they can have conversations about it internally. Um, I, I know there are some people who make their decisions to buy a script or not off of coverage. I would never, I, you gotta read the script. But coverage gives you the opportunity to at least have a, an intelligent conversation internally about what the movie is and what we're trying to do. Before Scream came out, I would use Scream as my test script to test potential readers before we would hire them. Um, every reader who saw the script as a comedy with, la with scares gave the script a pass. Every um, reader who read it as a horror movie with some laughs in it gave it a consider. Um, and by the way, just because someone gave it a pass didn't mean I didn't hire them. The most important thing to me on coverage is when I would read the coverage, see their decision, and then read their comments. If their comments could back what their decision was, that's a good reader. Because like I said, at the end of the day, I have to read the script myself to make a decision. Um, so if, if your comments make sense with your decision, I may still read, read your synopsis and go, that sounds like an interesting story to me. I'm going to read that. Um, but it's, it's my decision in that role, whether we're going to buy it or not, not yours. But if I can read your comments and go, yeah, you know, if you saw it as a comedy with scares in it, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's not funny. You can't kill people brutally in a comedy. You can kill, people can die in a comedy, but you can't be that brutal in a comedy because that's not funny. But the smart thing that Scream does in terms of that is once a, once a character that your heart belongs to gets killed, the laughs stop. There is nothing funny in Scream after Tatum dies. Mm. Nothing funny in Scream. Um, Randy's death, nothing funny in Scream 2 after Randy dies. Um, and the people, like you were saying, who tried to do what Scream did never got that, that the movie becomes serious at a certain point. And you can kind of tell in the first Scream if, uh, that Randy's right about who the killer is because Billy's the only character who doesn't have any funny scenes. And you mentioned uh, Randy, uh, who, who, spoiler, um, dies in the second film. I, I think that was sort of met with uh, universal shock from a lot of fans because Randy is the most of the people watching the films. They can identify with him. And do you think, I mean, you, I know you didn't, um, the production and moving forward with the franchise, you, you weren't involved with, but do you think um, that there was a bit of protection around the main characters until the latest installment? Uh, yes. Um, Randy had to go the same way Tatum had to go in the first movie. The only way that you're going to know that we're serious, anyone can be killed. You knew that Sydney was going to live in Scream 2 until Randy died. And then suddenly you went, well, wait a minute. Maybe she won't. Uh, or Gail or Dewey. Um, the joke about Dewey was always in all of these horror movies, the cops get killed, but you can't kill the killer. Whereas in horror movies, you can always kill the killer, you can't kill our cop. 
Um, and that's how um, Dewey made it through um, the movies that he made it through. <laughs> I guess um, another Aussie connection, uh, Portia de Rossi, she was um, one of her first body movies around this period of time. Yeah. Uh, any, yeah. note, no, any note working with her? She was super fun. You know, you, you form certain friendships and the people that you just kind of connect to. Um, she was in a relationship at the time, um, and so was I. So we both knew that about each other. So there were a lot of nights like where people were just sort of, uh, you know, you drift off and you're just hanging with someone. Where it was just the two of us hanging out, having a beer or whatever. And I don't think there was ever that, like she ever felt like I was gonna hit on her or I worried that she thought this was inappropriate. We were just like two people. We, we actually talked about music a lot. We would sit um, in Atlanta and just talk about music. She was so super cool and super, super nice. And I remember asking her because of how she speaks, if she could do an Australian accent because she had gone, you know, taking classes um, for American movies. And she said she didn't think she could really do it anymore. That like putting it on, which I thought was interesting. I do know from friends of mine who are um, uh, British that when they spend a lot of time here, their British friends feel like they kind of lose their accent and they can't put it on. But when they go home, just getting back in the rhythm of being at home, it just comes back. And I always wondered with Portia, if she just goes back after like a week, if it just starts to happen because it feels natural. But I think when it's the natural way you speak, you can't put it on because you can't fake what's natural. There's no, people try to do what they think is an American accent, not understanding the size of this country that we're, <laughs> that the United States is as large as Europe. So like someone from New York is as far from someone in, let's say, I don't know, Los Angeles as someone in London is from someone in Italy. Um, they, it's really like, even both speaking English or both speaking Italian, your accents are not going to be the same. You said uh, from the top that Scream 2 was, uh, you had an absolute blast. Um, I guess if you, had, you take your biggest memory away from Scream 2, what would that be? I don't know if it's an individual moment. I think it was that feeling of we're having so much fun. And on Scream, we really thought we had something good. That, you know, you don't know. On screen two, as we were shooting it, there was that feeling of, oh, we know this is good. We know, like we have it. You, you just knew we have something special here. And uh, I'll say this when people discuss their sequel, sequels and which is the best one and all that, I will always say the best in the franchise is the second movie. And that from a development construction of a franchise concept it has to be the only way a franchise succeeds is if the second movie is better than the first one not as good it has to be better because you have to justify making more otherwise all you've done is a sequel it's not a franchise star wars doesn't become star wars if the empire strikes back is not better than star wars and the thing i know is for nerds will appreciate this me being one of them Doctor Who only succeeds if Patrick Troughton, the second doctor, can get you to love him more than you loved the first doctor, or you're never gonna accept that there can be more doctors that you'll love. The second is always more important if it's gonna be a franchise. If it's just a sequel, doesn't matter, it can be as good. 
Bride of Frankenstein is considered better than the original Frankenstein. Godfather 2, Oscar nominated film, better than The Godfather. In order to be a franchise, the second has to be better. Aliens, uh, Terminator. Um, <laughs> funny that you mentioned that. Do you know the conversation in Scream 2 about sequels? That's an actual conversation between Andrew Rona and me. Kevin tweaked it a little bit, but uh, George Huang, who wrote the movie Swimming with Sharks, we were all sitting together one day um, having lunch, or I think lunch, and um, George asked Kevin where he gets that kind of dialogue from. He said, I just listened to what Richard and Andrew were talking about, and I write that down. Um, but we were having that actual sequels versus planned trilogy conversation with Kevin because we were, Scream was a planned trilogy. It was never intended to go beyond three. And there's some interview I did with Starlog or one of those magazines that used to be around in the, uh, in the 90s where I talked about how it's a planned trilogy. We want it to be the Star Wars trilogy of horror movies. Scream was supposed to end with three. The three that got made is not the three that we were discussing at the time. I think if we had done the three that we were discussing at the time, the franchise would have ended. You couldn't have continued it. It would have had to have been completely rebooted with new characters, which would have been fine. Some aspects of it are in Scream 4, of what was that original idea for three. The whole Hollywood thing and Maureen Prescott and Roman was not, that didn't exist when Scream and Scream 2 were being made. So I see people online saying they don't give enough credit to Roman for putting the whole thing. And it's like, yeah, well, th there was no Roman. We hadn't even, been, like, that wasn't this whole backstory thing, you know. And to be fair, the other thing that was great about the original Scream script was Billy and Stu do not have a motive. Maureen Prescott and Billy's father is Billy's excuse. It is not his motive. If it was his motive, it doesn't explain why they kill any of the other people. It doesn't explain why they kill Steve Orth at the beginning and then kill Casey Becker. It has nothing to do with Maureen Prescott. Um, Randy, who is always right, tells us in the, in the uh, video store that there are no motives. It's the new millennium or it's the millennium. And then Billy says at the end, he doesn't have a motive. But if we need a motive, how's this? He's not saying that is my motive. He's saying, if I need one, I could always say it's this. But Billy is a psycho. If they really killed Maureen the year before, why are they doing this now if it was about her? And why, if it really is about that situation, why isn't Billy mad at his father? Why isn't Billy mad at his mother for actually leaving? It, it isn't. And I've discussed this once before. My wife, who is a psychologist, mentioned to me the concept of a folia do. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's a shared psychosis. In a folia do, you put two people together and they will share one of them. The dominant one has some kind of psychosis and somehow gets the other person to share their psychosis. This is a real thing. Billy is really a psychotic one. Stu, having a weaker personality, ends up in the folia do. He's killing because Billy's a psycho and wants to kill him. He's been brought into the psychosis. In real life, when you have a folia do, you separate the two individuals. The, you'll find out who the weaker and the strong one are because the weaker one will recover when they're separated. The stronger one will stay psychotic. Billy is a psycho. He even tells you, movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. He's the psycho. 
And when they, she asks, when Sydney asks Stu why he's doing it, he says peer pressure. He's not that wrong. He has been pressured into doing this because he, he's been subsumed by Billy's personality. It's a folie ado. I mean, I've gotten to discussions. We talked about toxic fandom and stuff with people about whether Billy has a motive or not. He doesn't. I was in the room, me, Kevin, Marianne, uh, Marianne Madalena, uh, Bob Weinstein, and Kathy Conrad, and we discussed this. And the line, it's scarier if there's no motive, is what I actually said. It's one of those examples of Kevin liking what I said. It's scarier if there's no motive. And the reason for that, sorry if this is turning into a lecture. The reason for that is if the killer has a reason why, then potentially the victim can come up with a reason why not and talk them out of it. But if there is no reason why, you can't talk me out of this. I'm going to do this to you. And, and what about uh, Scream 2 then? I guess um, a lot of fans sort of say, well, Debbie Salt, uh, you know, Mrs. Loomis, well, she, she abandoned Billy. So, you know, obviously it's still a son, but it just, was there a little, did it seem like there could be potentially a disconnect with her being the killer? No, because she actually, other than Randy, she doesn't kill anyone until the end. She is dealing with her husband's betrayal. Her family fell apart. Who knows if she was going to come back? We don't know what she was doing during the, let's be honest, two days that Scream is taking place over. We don't know where she is or what she's doing. But because of this whole thing with Sydney's family and Sydney in particular, she lost her son. So now she really, she does have a motive. She blames everything that happened to her family on Sydney. Sydney's mother's already dead. You can't blame Maureen, but Sydney actually killed her son. So she's going to get Sydney back. And she found, you know, a psycho. She found someone who, I guess she would recognize the signs, like her son, Billy. There's a book called um, The Sociopath Next Door. Recommend it to everyone. Um, I have nothing to do with the book, by the way. Um, it's based on studies. One in 25 people is a sociopath. One in 25, that's a lot. Doesn't mean they're killers. Doesn't mean murderers. It just means someone who on that spectrum of, I just don't feel like the rules in the world apply to me to I'm allowed to kill people because I'm special. Bill, you know, she found another one who was, she was able to, she got him to believe that he was gonna do this heroic thing. You know, Bob Dole on the floor of Cong in the Congress defending me, that whole speech that he gives, you know, she manipulated a weak-minded, psycho into doing terrible things it's i mean what kevin did is brilliant i mean the more you talk about it you go oh my god the levels that he came up with and i think that's one thing that's definitely underrated like um yeah like like you mentioned the levels there which makes the franchise um i mean one of the the best horror franchises um Richard, you've been very generous with your time. I'm hoping you may be able to indulge me before we do wrap up. I was hoping to play a little game. I was going to do my Rod, my best Roger L. Jackson voice uh, and uh, ask you some questions about the original film and we can see if you survive. Sure, I won't, but I'll try. <laughs> All right. What is the number one rule uh, on Randy's list for surviving a horror movie? Oh, I don't know them in order. Is that, uh, it's not never say you'll be right back. No, that's the third one. The, third the one. it's uh, never have sex, never do drugs. Never have and... sex, never do drugs. Yes, the sins, <laughs> the sins. The sins. <laughs> By the way, why aren't the rules of the horror movie after Scream and Scream Two called the Randy rules? 
Let's make that happen. They should be called the Randy rules. The Randy rules. Yeah. Well, you know, it's especially in that universe. Absolutely. I love that. That could potentially, uh, the, the new, uh, the new one being, um, in development, uh, any, any, uh, is there any chance or desire for you to be involved as a consultant or help out to, in, in the film industry? If they wanted me, I would absolutely do it, um, to do whatever they want. I love the franchise. It means a lot to me. Anything they would want me to do, I'd be happy to do it. I, I also feel if they wanted me, all of us who worked with Wes, if they want to really bring the Wes back into it, the only way you can do that is to bring in the people who were working on it with him. I mean, I know that Kevin worked with them, which is obviously, I mean, he invented the whole thing. You can't get much more what is screamed than Kevin. But to get the feel of it, I think, all of us, all of us would do it. I, I, I can't say like I've gotten everyone to say, yes, I would and sign a piece of paper, but we've all had conversations like if we've all worked on a lot of different things, but scream is the thing, you know, if someone said, you want to get the band back together where we would go, yeah, for this, I would do it. It is special. And when like, when you talk about like what we were just talking about a second ago, like Mickey's motive and all that stuff, that really landed for teenagers in the nineties who were dealing in the, uh, after the Columbine shooting and all the discussion of kids and violence and how violence does violence in media cause violence in the real world. I'll give you a hint. No, it does not. Um, there is no evidence that it does. Um, but uh, um, I'm saying that as someone who lived through this, having screen played on the floor of the United States Congress to blame us for Columbine. That was very of the time for them. That's another level it works on. But then you look at like we talked about the to toxic fandom now being an aspect of this one. I mean, the, it, they work on levels that other horror movies don't. It's not just about a guy's got a knife and he's going to try to kill you. There's more to it than that. Let's uh, start making some calls and see if, uh, quote unquote, can get the, get the band back together. Mm -hmm. Qu question two, how many seconds delay does the hidden camera in Stu's house have? Seven. 30. 30. Really? We did 30? <laughs> oh no, you're right. Oh my God. Not only are you not only are you right, but we actually had that discussion because in real life a delay is seven seconds. And the purpose of the seven second delay is for live television. If I say something, you have time to bleep it out. Yeah, dump it. Oh yeah. my God, you just gave me a flashback of the conversation of how long it should be. Because we had to come up with are people going to believe a 30 second delay? Like what is taking 30 seconds? Like, unless you build in a delay, like a seven second delay, there it wouldn't, there would be no delay. Um, I'm sort of familiar in radio, commercial radio. If, uh, if a caller says the F-bomb or something you don't like, you got that seven second delay to drop right. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is I love that you know this stuff. <laughs> this is an interesting one. Uh, how many Saturn awards uh, was Scream nominated for? Oh, by the time scream was getting awards i was standing on the set of scream too like <laughs> you know i have no idea uh apparently nominated for six uh it won three best actress best writing and best horror film number four uh what day of the week does neil tell sydney he'll be back i got a one in seven cat one in seven yes i'm gonna say thursday sunday sunday yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think you've survived, but I'll give you question five. Uh, what brand of popcorn is Casey Becker cooking on her stove? Jiffy Pop. Correct. Out of the five, I think we yeah, you got about um, one of the five there, actually. So I don't yeah, think you It's terrible. Either. But I'll tell you the one that people always get wrong. You know how it, the question, the sort of trick question is who's the killer in Friday the 13th? 
and she says Jason and it's Jason's mother. Ask people who the first person killed in Scream is and they'll all say Casey Becker. It's not it's Steve Orth. True. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah, but, yeah, well, I would have said Casey, but you're, you're absolutely correct. It's Steve Orth. Richard, I've greatly appreciated chatting with you. Um, uh, it's It's been, um, like I said, uh, as a kid, absolutely loved the Scream film. So it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and get the uh, inside goss. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, is there uh, anything we can plug for you? What, what's uh, in the pipeline on your end of things? You know, you're a photographer, a jack of all trades. Uh, what's, what is uh, keeping you busy in 2022? Uh, the stuff that I'm doing right now, I can't tell you. I mean, one thing is... Uh, helping develop mythology for a video game. Um, I just worked on um, the animated version of Night of the Living Dead called Night of the Animated Dead, which is funny. Critics hated it. Fans seem to love it. Be one of the reasons behind doing it was the fact that uh, you can't get younger people these days, I know I sound like an old man, to watch a black and white slow moving movie, but you make it color and compact the action and make it move faster. And suddenly they're back on the George Romero bandwagon. So that's why that was done. I wish I could tell you. It's so, fr it's so frustrating that you, we sign these contracts to work on things. It's like, I have to, I have to respect it because in the days of Scream 2, I was the one telling people, you can't tell anyone what this is uh, when they would get the script. Uh, the only thing I would say to plug is this, plug you and your show, remind everyone that they should listen to you because I think you're awesome. I love this. Uh, anytime you want me to talk about anything, I'm available. Oh, Richard, you're far too kind. That, that means a lot. Uh, Richard Potter. Um, you can find you at Richard Potter on Twitter. Um, uh, no toxic fandom, please. But um, is that the only sort of forms of social media you're on? You're on the Instagram or the TikTok or all the other cool stuff out there? The only thing I really interact on outside of just like people that I actually know is Twitter. I'm happy to answer any question you have, talk to you anything you want, um, but I won't have an argument with you. <laughs> Richard Potter, you've been the best. Thanks so much. Thank you.